Chris O'Connor here. Join our prestigious curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also be on the lookout for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Disco practically killed James Brown. After a run of Herculean singles that changed not only the face of R&B and soul music, but popular culture as well, while inventing funk and laying down the groundwork for hip-hop, disco came along in the mid-1970s and made Mr. Brown irrelevant very quickly. Try as he might, he could not rekindle the magic of his halcyon years, and attendance at his shows dwindled to a paltry fraction of what it used to be. Alas, Hollywood beckoned. First, in 1980, the Dan Aykroyd-John Belushi film, The Blues Brothers, which featured Brown as a high-energy, charismatic gospel preacher and saw the godfather of soul practically steal the whole movie, re-established Brown's proper status as a living legend and national institution in the eyes of the American public. Then, in 1985, he had another cameo appearance in Rocky IV that resulted in him having his last big hit and one of the biggest of his career with Living in America. Brown was back, baby, bigger than ever, and had certified legend status thanks to the mainstream emergence of hip-hop, a genre that bore a huge debt to his influence. Alas, Middle-aged James Brown still managed to fall into the typical pop star trappings of those half his age. An increasingly bad drug addiction, toxic romantic relationships, and trouble with the law. Yet, even after a two and a half year prison sentence for aggravated assault, resisting arrest, and a conflation of other offenses, he emerged in 1991 as the living embodiment of all that encompassed black music in the second half of the 20th century and was a touring machine until his death in 2006. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report and part three, the final installment of James Brown, the super bad Mr. Dynamite of all legacies. So, Arturo, uh, James Brown went from teaching the world to get its funk on in 1967 with the masterful Cold Sweat to creepily lusting after Big Butt in 1979 with the not-so-masterful, for goodness sakes, look at those cakes. Uh, yike. Yeah, yeah. Yike, yikes, yikes. Uh, the mighty took a great fall there, didn't he? Yeah, disco made him desperate. <laughs> Which, you know, yeah. and I'll, I'll, mention, I'll mention this later, but the irony is that his music uh, his peak period music was such a, 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 a one of the foundational parts of, of one of the foundational elements of disco's DNA. Yet he sure. couldn't wrap his head around disco. You know. Yeah, which is just kind of strange. Yeah, you, like you said, disco bubbles up from his influence, and then he's like trying to keep catch up with them and do a facsimile of them. It just kind of shows you either uh, he was just in an inspiration funk, like like not the funk, but just a funk. Yeah. Or uh, it was just a struggle. So it's but we're going to be talking about that. This is kind of the fall, the re-rise, the refall and the re-rise of James Brown. <laughs> yeah, really, uh, he really fluctuated <laughs> all over the place after this yeah. after the 1970s. Yeah, seriously, it was it was like a strange uh, run. Once he gets from uh, from like the late 70s to the rest of his life, he had kind of it was, it was wild. I mean, it was yeah. it was really just kind of wacky. Uh, like, not, like most, and, most people mellow out with age, but not James Brown. No, he didn't mellow out, and and not in a good way, by the way. This is not, you know, this is, I guess, this is where the we, 
in part three, you know, we we've, we've done a lot of this with good humor and, and marveling at the ability and marveling at some of the outrageousness. Yeah, uh, it gets kind of dark uh, here. Yeah, it really in, does. In the eighties, which which we'll talk about, but uh, uh, you know where it's never dark, right? The parallel universe. Yes, it is never dark in the parallel universe. Good guess there, bud. Uh, so, yep, uh, we are uh, over here in the parallel universe on the other side of the space-time continuum where rock and roll is still predominant and is still awesome and is still revered by everyone and everything. Uh, it has not lost its steam and we don't have to put up with too much auto-tune over here in the parallel uh, universe. Uh, fancy way of saying this is the uh, section of the show where Arturo and I cover new or newish records by contemporary artists uh, and those folks uh, keeping the rock flame lit. Uh, and we do that uh, on every episode, which we cover one of those albums. Arturo, who are you covering this weekend or on this episode in the Parallel Universe? Yes, one of this podcast's favorite contemporary hip hop artists. Mobile, Alabama's own Flo Millie just a few months ago released a standalone single called Nasty Dancer. Um, this is, a, a, well, in a parallel universe where good music gets airplay, Flo Millie would be a superstar. That's where she yeah. falls in. Um, this is a fun-as-fuck, slinky-grooved dance track set to a very old-school, almost late-1980s minimalist beat with a glistening synthesized string arrangement in the background guiding it through. Flo Millie raps in her typical bravado about how hot she is, how hot all the other bitches know she is, how she doesn't fuck around with younger men, and how she's going to make that man squirt when she fucks him. It also has an infectious chorus. She is not the most socially conscious rapper in the game, for sure. <laughs> But she is one of the most skilled rappers in the game right now. She has a terrific inventive flow. And even her nasty ass pornographic lyrics are cleverly delivered and have a sly tongue-in-cheek wit to them. It's only a matter of time before I think she crosses over to the mainstream and thus out of our parallel universe. Chris? Yeah, I, I agree. Probably by the end of 2025, she'll be a star because she's she's ascending. Uh, for sure. But uh, for now, she's still on this side where uh, we uh, are making people aware of the uh, growing greatness uh, of uh, Ms. Uh, Flo Millie. But anyway, yeah, I like this song. It you, you can't quite call it tasteful, but it's not as outrageous as uh, some of her earlier stuff. Dude, uh, the, name of the, song, the name of the song is Nasty Dancer. It's not polite, politically correct dancer. No, 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 it's not. She she is still a nasty dancer. But what I mean is uh, her flow, she's gotten so good as a rapper and so confident as a musician and as a performer that it's not quite as it's not quite as blunt. And it's not I mean, this is not comedy rap. I mean, yeah. some of her some of her earlier stuff, because it's so unrefined and still so body. Yeah, uh, almost counts as comedy rap. But uh, this is not, and uh, like you said, great flow, and I, I love the beat in the sense that it really does evoke the uh, the vocator loving days of the early '80s. You yeah. know, a lot of the uh, a lot of sort of the underground uh, dance music and early hip hop that was going on from Bambata and mm. uh, the Treacherous Three and, and groups like that. So she's kind of embodying that spirit, but she rides that beat really, really, really well. Which is yeah. why I'm saying, which is why she can get away with some of the, like, she is a nasty dancer and a nasty talker. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, it's Oprah Winfrey's not exactly going to be calling her to come on to OWN <laughs> any, <laughs> anytime soon. Uh, you know, let's, let's just put it that way. Uh, you know, another band that we actually love, uh, which is why we're covering them uh, on this episode, is the uh, Tuareg uh, musical collective Tinariwen. And uh, you wouldn't think there's two things that you wouldn't think that would go together all that well, Arturo. Yeah. And that's intricate, inherently minimal Tuareg blues and, and folk and the so flush and maximal. It's almost precious production style of Canadian Daniel Lanois. <laughs> uh, but yet somehow, uh, for the most part, that works on Tinari One's new record, Amatsu. Uh, which is just out within the last uh, six weeks or so. Now, uh, what and who are uh, Tinariwen? 
uh, for those that don't know, I'll just give a brief overview. Uh, Tenari One has been around really since the late 1970s. It's a collective of musicians from the Tuareg region of Mali up there in, in the north, uh, which has been perpetually war-torn and conflict-torn for decades and decades. And uh, when we, most rock and rollers, they talk about themselves about uh, in terms of being rep, rebels in exile. Uh, they're being metaphorical. Uh, not these guys. They, these guys are actually rebels in exile. Yeah. And uh, have been for a long time. And th- their story is, is that they were kicking around uh, doing this uh, regional blend of folk and blues and uh, you know, sort of po- African uh, polyrhythms up there in that region. It's almost got a, got a very, des- it's almost desert noir. It's African desert noir is one way that you can describe uh, their music. And they, they had been kicking around for decades, and they started to get more of a profile. And starting in the early 2000s, uh, they sort of broke out uh, with the world music enthusiasts in the in the recording industry. And by 2012, they're winning a Grammy uh, for their album, their 2011 album, Tassili, uh, which is just a really uh, wonderful uh, blend of styles, uh, mostly recorded live and just uh, just a beautiful uh, record and, and and fairly minimal. And uh, this band, uh, they're I guess they're more of a collective because but there's three constants uh, that uh, they're all really uh, compelling vocalists, but also and but all three of them are amazing lead guitar players. This is one of the best guitar bands in the world. Uh, and these guys are Ibrahim Ag Al Habib. He's the uh, main he's guy, the, by the way. Yeah, he's he the main was- guy. He's he's basically the founder and he's the uh he's the leader and then there's abdallah ag al husseini and then al hassan ag talmani or talhami and uh together they uh, they do the lead guitar and the lead vocals for the songs that they write and but mostly it's ag halabib uh that that does uh, that does the music and so uh, they've been able to get this following and now every couple of years they release a record and they've just done this one uh this one though comes out of it's kind of a strange exercise it comes out of of covid uh it, the true covid exile that originally they were supposed to travel to nashville and jack white was supposed to produce this record hmm. but because of covid travel restrictions they got stuck there in northern africa and they hooked up with daniel lanois and as i understand it there was a lot of uh, uh tape trading that uh Lanois got a hold of the masters and was able to, to do his thing uh, from uh, from there. Uh, although, you know, did, I don't necess- you would think in theory that shouldn't be a good thing because Lanois does take these tracks and he overdubs the heck out of them with country music uh, instruments, uh, banjo. In the mind, you know, West African desert blues is country. <laughs> yeah. I know. And so there's banjo, there's violin, there's pedal steel, a uh, uh, young country musician, uh, New Yorker, actually, Ka- uh, Fats Kaplan, uh, uh, plays on several tracks on this record. Uh, Lanois plays pedal steel, too. And so it's like, why exactly do Tinari win, who can more than, than hold their own with their guitars and also their percussion? Uh, it's really yeah. uh, exciting percussion arrangements on these songs. Why exactly do they need banjo and uh, pedal steel and violin? Uh, so th- I guess that's a complaint you can make is that it's it's become it becomes more maximal than it needs to be. But for the most part, it works. And uh, continuing a theme for 2023, this is a good three and a half star record. <laughs> you know, uh, everything we do these this year is three and a half stars. Uh, highlights, I'll uh, point out four songs. There's Tenere Den. Uh, which is a pretty mid-tempo ballad propelled by resonant soaring lead guitar and fiddle counterbalance from Kaplan that complements it way better than it logically should. There is Araj uh, Gayani, which is an epically rumbling meditative jam from Ahabib sung with stern purpose. There is Tijit, which is my personal favorite song on the record. It's an acoustic, uh, it's similarly meditative and perhaps jollier, because of rhythmic claps and a subtly relaxed beat. I mean, seriously, this is one of these ones on on repeat listening. It's not quite as energetic as you think it is. uh, And that's because of the time signature. It's, it's a really, it's, it's weird, but fascinating. And then finally, there's a song called Anna Moaka, 
or Anamoaha, which is uh, an up-tempo number uh, from uh, Al-Habib, where uh, percussion and uh, pan, uh, banjo are somehow managed to coexist without clashing. Uh, perhaps the closest thing on the record to actual dance music. So uh, there's another Tuareg that we've talked about on this uh, podcast several times, uh, uh, Mdou Mokhtar, a uh, young guy who is one of the better guitarists uh, in the world. And he's kind of an it boy among uh, indie rock uh, enthusiasts and journalists uh, here in the States. Uh, you know, he's got a, a Brooklyn bred uh, bassist in his band. But uh, Mokhtar would be nowhere and would be nothing without the uh, the undying influence and sure. presence of Tinari Wen. And so, yeah. folks, if you haven't uh, listened to Tinari Wen, we definitely recommend that you spend some time. Uh, start with Tassili. I think Tassili is the, the best of those records uh, that they've done. Although uh, the 2017 one, I think it's called Elwan, was very, very good as well. And that's and that's more rocking than this one. I love Tinari Wen. I'm a big fan. If you want to hear the best of Tinari Wen, you really have to go way back. 2004, mm. Amasakul. That was okay. their album that really gave them worldwide fame. And frankly, uh, it's on my list of the 500 greatest albums ever made. Um, it's okay. a truly, truly special record. It set the template for it. It is the template for Tinari Wen and everything they've done after. Um, this new album, um, it's, nothing, it's not bad. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's recycled. Aside from the Daniel Lenoir country embellishments in the arrangements, it's mellow. It's mostly mellowed out acoustic Tinari one. And yes. if you want to hear, you want to hear that done much better. Go to 2011's Tassili, like you said, Chris. Um, that that's the acoustic Tinari one d- done way better uh, than this. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Okay, now we get to start uh, talking about James Brown once again. This is the third part of our uh, discussion on Brown. Uh, you obviously go back and check out our first two parts. When last we revisited Brown, he was at the end of his marvelous uh, period of creativity where he introduced funk uh, to the world. Uh, we had said uh, at the end of that string of hits that we talked about last time, uh, the last song we talked about was My Thang, uh, which he, where we said he started to get back to singing real songs and not doing the, the pure rhythmic workouts that he had been doing. Right. And so it was uh, horn arrangements that were closer to what he was doing in the late fifties and early sixties. It was, uh, and it was more melodies, uh, the kind of thing that he was doing in the late fifties as well. Well, after like my thing and like funky president, that was no longer a good thing. And uh, <laughs> ironically enough, he got swallowed up by disco which without him probably wouldn't have existed, right, Art? That's the big irony of it all. Yeah. We ended the previous installment of the this James Brown trilogy in 1974, like you said, right when he was ending his peak years as one of the greatest American musical innovators of the 20th century. Starting in 1975, an entirely new genre of music rooted in R&B, soul, and funk would fluctuate throughout the mainstream that would eventually affect all of pop music For the rest of the decade, this, of course, is disco, starting in loft parties in New York, catering to the gay, black, and Hispanic communities at the beginning of the decade. It moved on to gay dance clubs, then to more mainstream dance clubs, eventually becoming a constant presence on commercial pop radio. Artists like Donna Summer, Van McCoy, and Casey and the Sunshine Band latched on to this movement early on, and eventually most major artists basically had to at least experiment 
with disco in order to stay relevant throughout the rest of the decade. There's a long list of major names throughout the soul, R&B, and even rock spectrums that dipped their toes in disco, and James Brown was no exception. The problem was Brown just wasn't very good at it, (laughs) which, like I said before, is ironic considering how Brown's records were a big part of the music that was spun in underground clubs in disco's early days. He dipped into disco with the 1975 album Sex Machine Today, which was a resounding flop. Uh, The irresistible Get Up Off of That Thing hit number four in the R&B chart in 1976, but after that, it would be nine years until a James Brown single reached the R&B top 10 again. Even tracks that I personally love, such as 1976's Body Heat and 1979's It's Too Funky in Here, charted very low, especially compared to the man's previous heights. His disappearance from the charts also precipitated a decline in attendance for his shows. He went from arenas to auditoriums to smaller theaters, and even then with lots of empty seats. By the time of 1979's desperate and terrible album, The Original Disco Man, he was very <laughs> He was barely writing and producing songs, leaving all the legwork to his producer at the time, Brad Shapiro. It seems that Disco and George Clinton's Parliament Funkadelic Collective, which was hugely popular at the the time, had sucked all the funk out of the room, leaving little for anyone else, much less James Brown. Chris? Yeah, and don't don't forget Rick James, too. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, Rick Rick James kind of took... The, uh, the 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 mantle, or he kind of picked up where Brown left off. He was like he had the baton of the sort of the more uh, the the more uh, melody based funk, as opposed to whatever you would call what Parliament was doing, which is brilliant, right. but is yeah. was nowhere near conventional. So yeah. James had kind of taken up the conventional funk uh, 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 perch at that point. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you mentioned it's too funky in here. Uh, that that song is just fun. Uh, it, it it really is, and yeah. I will. I got to give it to Brown, though. He did manage to hold on a lot longer than some of his peers did. You know, like the right. Chuck Berries and the the Little Richards, and the at least he managed to keep relevant until the mid seventies before he yeah. he uh, before he dropped off. Whereas the, all those other guys that and and gals, if you include yeah. Aretha Franklin, they didn't necessarily maintain it uh, past like seventy one, seventy two. And yeah. If they if they even got that far, so at least he he was able to find an innovation and keep going. Mm. So I don't know again if it was just middle age malaise, if it was just lack of inspiration, if it and we'll talk more about it later in the episode. Uh, nobody really, you know, Brown like you mentioned last episode, he fired uh, the the Collins brothers for being right. high on LSD. <laughs> a concert they did in 1971 and so he was yeah. very hard line about not having druggies in his band but you almost have to wonder if what we knew you know that came out later which yeah. was that he had a serious uh drug addiction problem wondering if that was creeping up in the 70s sure so and, all, and also, also we got to realize like no one is that creatively brilliant forever no you know, all artists have all bands have a shelf life they really do yeah <laughs> yeah, they do. Or or they have peaks and valleys anyway. I mean, right. you know, obviously, you know, you, the, the most obvious one we can talk about that with that is, is Bob Dylan, who yeah. since 1976 has had like long valleys with with very short but brilliant climbs and then yeah. d- descends back into the valley. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, you know, you kind of get that. Uh, so, yeah, no one's brilliant forever. But alas, you did mention that there was a nine-year period. Uh, it, it's the end of that nine-year period that is actually one of the more fun things to talk about in the entire Brown catalog, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. But in between that, uh, the the beauty and the power of Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, and John Landis gave Brown <laughs> right. some unusually uh, sourced new life. Now, didn't it? Yes. The James Brown's resurgence would come from a very unlikely place indeed. The huge success of the NBC skit variety show Saturday Night Live meant that several of its performers would go on to have success in Hollywood movies. 
Two of SNL's biggest stars at the time were Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. Together with director John Landis, they crafted a story about a couple of blues singing and petty criminal brothers who try to raise money to save a Catholic orphanage from closing down. Or on a mission from God. You know, that's the whole tagline from that, right? The resulting movie that came out in 1990 was The Blues Brothers. And on Aykroyd's demand, it featured a whole slew of legendary R&B, blues, and soul artists in both speaking and singing parts, such as Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, John Lee Hooker, and Cab Calloway. Now, where, do, where does James Brown come in? Well, early in the film, there's a scene where both Blues Brothers are attending a sermon at the Triple Rock Baptist Church. Brown plays the part of Reverend Cleophis James and delivers an inspiring sermon and an even more scintillating musical performance where he basically does his James Brown act. Not only does it give the James Belushi character, uh, John Belushi, sorry, not James Belushi. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, let's be careful here. Yeah, you give John Belushi an epiphany and an idea on how to raise that orphanage money. It reintroduced James Brown to mainstream music and movie fans and exposed him to a new generation. It didn't generate any hit singles, but attendance at his shows spiked and Brown's status as a legendary institution of American music started to solidify. He sold out a critically acclaimed residency of shows at the Reseda Country Club in Los Angeles in 1982. He made another cameo appearance in a Dan Aykroyd movie, this time Dr. Detroit in 1983. Which is a great movie. And of course, the burgeoning new genre of hip-hop a genre that basically has its genetic coding in Brown's funk music, was starting to show its debt when Brown collaborated with the renowned DJ Africa Bombada on the single Unity. The icing on his comeback, though, would come in 1985. We'll talk about that very soon. Chris, any early 80s James Brown thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, it's it's just funny that uh, I went back and I watch that scene in the blues brothers which is just it, it's kind of ridiculous when you look at <laughs> back at it now it's yeah. like uh it, it's almost like if you were a church a black person in church you, you did backflips and so so the so the essence of black worship of god was doing lots and lots and lots of backflips <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, let's just put it this way: that the, uh, you know, uh, there, there's not exactly a uh, a lot of racial equity going on in the perspective, you know, you know, <laughs> in the writing and the directing of John Landis's movies. Like even coming to America, some of that stuff comes out. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, Brown is like you said, Brown is doing Brown shtick. And keep in mind, Brown never released a gospel record. Yeah. And yet, you know, he still has all this connection to gospel music because that's how he got to start. And then I think when a lot of people I remember when I was a kid, my first exposure to James Brown was through this movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's, you know, that's how I understood it, a lot of those folks, actually, Aretha. I mean, that yeah. was my, my first exposure to her was through the Blues Brothers. And so it's like, so who are all these who are all these fine black people that are making, you know, uh, James, uh, Jim, John Belushi. I did it, too. John Belushi. <laughs> Uh, want to do all those backflips down the aisle and get the band back together to save the orphanage uh, <laughs> and be on that mission from God. Brown, you kind of hit the nail on the head that he became a novelty, he, not so much a novelty act, but by the early 80s, uh, he, he, his stuff was so ingrained and people were finding the humor in it so that you had this generation of comedians that found the novelty. Oh, Eddie Murphy, best yeah. example of it. Yeah, absolutely. They found the novelty in Brown, and then that's kind of what gave him his second life. Yeah, and there was, there, yeah, there was that 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 skit on Saturday Night Live when Eddie Murphy in the early eighties uh, oh, doing his James Brown, the hot tub, Ugh! hot tub, tub too hot, you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and well, yeah, there's all that, but you know, parody is the most sincere form of flattery. Yeah, in a lot of ways, and and that's kind of how it comes about, which then sets him up for. And, uh, you know, God bless Sylvester Stallone. Uh, and we'll, 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 we'll get into this in very, very, very shortly. But Sylvester Stallone is, is a very underrated for his kind of creative uh, mind. Yeah. 
that, yeah. that a lot of his movies that there's a shtick in it. Remember he, uh, one, one of my favorite lines in Rocky one is when Apollo Creed first comes out and he's dancing around in his uh, red, white, and blue outfit. Yeah. And the Stallone is over there saying he looks like a giant flag, uh, <laughs> which you know always cracks me up. But, but going off of that concept to come up with living in America and right. the staging of it. Yes. And it's just, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Speaking of that, Sylvester Stallone, as most of us know, wrote, directed, and starred in Rocky IV. According to R.J. Smith in his terrific James Brown biography, The One, The Life and Music of James Brown, which you should read, Chris, uh, it was also Stallone's idea. It was his idea to have James Brown in the movie singing a brand new song as an introduction to the exhibition boxing match between Carl Weathers' Apollo Creed character and Dolph Lundgren's Yvonne Drago character. Stallone approached studio musician and songwriter Dan Hartman, a guy who specialized in writing big, bombastic songs for Hollywood movies. I can dream about you, Sam. Yeah, yeah. According to Smith, quote, Stallone's pitch could not have been more direct. He wanted a top 10 hit sung by James Brown specifically with a strong patriotic undercurrent, end quote. Boy, did Hartman, along with his songwriting partner, Charlie Midnight, who wrote for Barbara Streisand, deliver on that. Living in America, while not one of my favorite Brown songs, I'll admit, is indeed a tour de force that couldn't have been more at home in the technicolor day glow of Ronald Reagan's conservative America in the mid-1980s. If you say you haven't heard it, you're wrong. You have. <laughs> it was everywhere from late 1985 to early 1986. It became basically folk music as far as how, how ingrained it was in American popular culture. It was a worldwide global smash, hitting number four on the U.S. pop chart, number five in the U.K. chart, his only U.K. top 10 hit, believe it or not, and the top 10 in many other countries. Big, bombastic, glossy leaning on the jingoism of Americans by name-checking city after city. It's your classic 1980s ego song, ego in big letters. Chris, any thoughts yeah. on living in America and the masterpiece that is Rocky IV? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have, I have plenty of thoughts. Uh, <laughs> well, first, it speaks to the genius of Dan Hartman and Charlie Midnight as songwriters that uh, this song is not really a James Brown song. No, it's they not. wrote it. They wrote it for James Brown, but it's not a James Brown song. That's why it works. I mean, if yeah. you think about the, if you look at the structure of the song and, and how it comes across, Hartman could have done that himself. Right. And he would have had a hit. It was a hit song. And remember, he was a year removed from I Can Dream About You from Streets of Fire. So he, right. he was he was at his peak uh, at the time. But the fact that James Brown did come in and do James Brown. Yeah. That song made it that much more special. Now, as for the scene itself, Rocky Four is like a marvelously, wonderfully terrible movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is one of the more entertaining, awful movies of all time. <laughs> and the reason being is the staging of this scene with Brown's uh, doing Living in America. It is so ridiculous and so entertaining. Well, first off, Carl Weathers looks like he's having the time of his life in that scene <laughs> you know, out there dancing around with James Brown, you know, in his, you know, he's back out there in his American flag get up. And yeah, yeah he, he comes down towards the stage with a with a demonic goat head behind him, which I never quite understood. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, oh, pardon a little bit of uh, fuzz in my mic there, but it just was crack, cracks me up. That here you have like a Vegas boxing spectacle. You've got the red, white, and blue uh, lad uh, laden uh, dancing girls, like the showgirls, like Vegas showgirls behind him. You've got Drago in the middle, like looking all pissed and all stern, like li literally out there in front of James Brown in the middle of all this is you've got the pissed off <laughs> Russian, like I'm about to kill you uh, out there in the middle. And Weathers is out there dancing, but he's coming down and he's descending with a goat head. <laughs> like, a, like a satanic goat head and i'm just like where 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 the hell did this come from and then you then you get like intercut close-up shots of like uh adrian hey, yo adrian she liked living in america too because she's bopping her head to it 
and like and then like when, when she wasn't complaining to Rocky and saying you can't win in every fight Rocky gets involved in. Yeah, pretty much. And then there's the even a shot of the most unsupportive sports wife ever. Yeah, pretty much. And then you actually you also get a shot of Burt Young as Polly, like for some reason, like holding a uh, like a, a satanic shaman looking stick with a skull on the end of it. Uh, that I, I imagine was supposed to go hand in hand with the goat head. Uh, it's just bizarre, but it's it, but it's wonderfully. It's like you know how Stallone thought of all this. You know, is just kind of uh, mind boggling. And then you you also just have to love the the pure poetry of the lyrics. Yes. Uh, now let let us quote this: Smoke stack, fat back, many miles of railroad track. All night radio, keep on running through your rock and roll soul. All night diners, keep you awake on black coffee and a hard roll. Woo! And that that that's a that's a James Brown lyric that James Brown did not write. It's like it's like an impressionistic version of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> As sung by James Brown in like a cheesy Rocky movie. High on so, PCP. <laughs> yeah, probably high on PCP as well. On this episode, we concluded our epic three-part series on the life and career of the legendary James Brown. For the next episode, we stay in the state of Georgia and tackle a less famous yet no less interesting band. For a brief time in the early 1990s, the Black Crows were one of the biggest and best bands in America. At the end of the glam slash hair metal era, they were the one mainstream rock band that stood for the classic rock values of the 1960s and 70s without slavishly copying their influences. At the peak of the grunge era in the early to mid-1990s, they were the one mainstream American rock band that seemed bigger than life, unabashedly flaunting rock's deep-rooted connection to black R&B and soul music, and seemed destined for all-time great status. But by the end of the 1990s, they had lost all career momentum and appeared washed up. What happened to this talented, inspiring band? Why couldn't they get past being a major cult band in the first decade of the 2000s and recapture their early majesty? Yours truly, curmudgeons, will try to answer these questions and more as we bring you an examination of the Black Crows. So, in the aftermath of Rocky IV and living in, and living in America, James Brown had a huge hit. He was selling out venues again. His legacy and status as an American musical pioneer and innovator were set in stone. He was the unwitting inspiration for hip hop. So all was well, right? Not so much. No. His downfall toward the end of the 1980s would be the result of a combination of toxic relationships, drug abuse, and trouble with the law. We cannot avoid the elephant in the room any longer, and that is the fact that Brown had an extensive history with physical abuse toward women. It's actually pretty disturbing. He was married three times, first with Velma Warren in 1953. They had a son, and they divorced in 1969. He married Deidre Jenkins in 1970, had two daughters, and separated in 1974 due to what one of the daughters has gone on record describing as years of domestic abuse. His third marriage came to Adrian Rodriguez in 1984. Now, all throughout his marriages and professional music career, Brown had seemingly hundreds of mistresses and affairs on the side with numerous illegitimate children as the byproduct of this. The main problem, however, is the physical abuse that was a common thread in many of these relationships, as brilliantly detailed in R.J. Smith's book. I won't go into all of that, too much to go into, yeah, but it seriously. bears mentioning that one of his affairs in the 1960s was with Tammy Terrell, who would go on to fame duetting on hit singles with Marvin Gaye before she died of brain cancer in 1970. She was one of, his, she was one of James Brown's backing singers, 
and also had to leave Brown simply because of the physical pummeling that she received from him on a constant basis. Brown's third marriage to Rodriguez was also rife with physical abuse by both parties involved. And that was exacerbated by the fact that both were addicted to PCP at the time. Ah, yes, PCP, otherwise known as, quote, angel dust. It's an anesthetic drug that can cause mild hallucinations, distort sound and perception, and depending on the individual, it can cause violent outbursts. You can snort it, inject it, or, as James Brown did, smoke it while laced with tobacco or pot. Yes. Brown started consuming PCP toward the end of the 1970s, and by the end of the 1980s, he was a full-blown addict. For someone with an already violent temper, it was a bad combination. And that combination was made worse when he was sharing the drug with an equally temperamental spouse. And then there are James Brown's brushes with the law. I mentioned in the first episode of this series that he was sent to a juvenile prison at the age of 16 for theft. He was let out on parole, which led to him taking off on his legendary career. He violated the conditions of that parole several times and got away with it throughout his life. In 1963, after feeling he was insulted by rival singer Joe Tex, he took not one but two shotguns with him to a nightclub in Macon, Georgia. While Otis Redding was performing, Brown went looking for Tex and shot the whole damn club up, injuring seven people. These people were then given $100 each by Brown's management in order to keep things quiet, not press charges, and not talk to the press. He also hated paying taxes. The yes, IRS he did. came calling numerous times throughout the 1970s asking for back taxes, and uh, he got hunted down and not arrested, but he came close to it and had to pay up. Well, they made, his, owned, they made him auction his house. They made him auction his house, yeah. He owned several radio stations throughout the South that closed down due to bankruptcy as a result of Brown not paying the taxes those stations owed. He was actually arrested in 1978 for failing to turn in records that were that after one of the turn in albums, music records after one of his stations uh, got shut down. His increasing drug addiction also made an abusive marriage even worse. Like I mentioned, seriously, on four occasions between 1987 and 1995, Adrian Rodriguez, who would die of an overdose in 1996. Uh, uh, Brown was arrested for domestic assault toward Rodriguez four different times from 87 to 95. It was all spiraling out of control when a colossal event on September 24th, 1988, involving PCP, guns, and a high-speed chase with police along the Georgia-South Carolina border when that happened. But Chris, before you go into this highly entertaining story, is there anything you want to add to the super bad actions of Mr. Brown? Yeah, uh, he, basically what happened, and we'll get into this in a second, is he he had spent years, he was a master of getting away with it. And, yeah. you know, basically bought his way out of jail uh, several mm-hmm. times. You know, he, he had the goodwill of being Augusta's favorite son going for yeah. him. He had, you know, he had the fame, he had the money and, and all of those. And so, you know, you mentioned some of those incidences of shutting up the uh, shutting uh, or shooting up the club. Yeah. Uh, all of the domestic abuse, all the stuff, you know, the escalating violence with uh, Adrian Rodriguez. Uh, basically, he just ran out of uh, of get out of jail free cards, literally, right. when uh, when this thing happened in September of 88. There was another incident, which I'll mention when I talk about this one in April of 88, that should have put him away probably for the rest of his life uh, and mm-hmm. which basically just got away with, okay, don't do that again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just, just, just astonishing abuses of power or uses of power to then have public officials abuse their power to help him get away with shit. Okay. So what, what exactly happened? Well, let, let's, let's set this up. I'm going to let the print journalists of the late eighties help me tell this story and we'll, we'll set a scene from after this thing happened, and then we'll describe in, in detail what exactly happened and the context of it. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. 
So first, I want to quote from our, an article by Alessandra uh, Stanley that ran in Time magazine in February of 1989. This kind of sets the scene and where things were. Uh, quote, when the phone rings in his office in Augusta, Georgia, a receptionist crisply answers, Godfather of Soul, but the boss cannot come to the phone right now. James Brown, the self-styled hardest working man in show business, is 70 miles away in South Carolina's State Park Correctional Center serving a six-year sentence. There he is listed as James J. Brown, number 155413. I'm just sitting quiet, not saying a thing, serving my time, says Brown from a payphone inside the minimum security facility. Every day he rises at 5.15 to dish out breakfast in the cafeteria, wearing a cook's white uniform and cap, embellished by purple wraparound sunglasses and a matching purple foulard scarf. He directs the chapel choir, and attendance has doubled since he got there. On Saturdays, his wife Adrian, a former hairstylist with the television show Solid Gold, brings a dryer and a bag of salon products to primp his curly coiffure. So that kind of sets up where he is after this happens. Now, let's read from a story by United Press International from September 24th, 1988, which is the, the night of this incident. And uh, quoting from the article first, it says, Police said Brown, 55, who has had several brushes with the law, was charged in Richmond County, Georgia, with simple assault, carrying a pistol without a license, carrying a deadly weapon at a public gathering, and seven misdemeanor charges. Now, in, 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 a, in a vacuum, that doesn't sound all that bad, but now let's get into what exactly Brown did. Quote, Richmond County Police said the incident began at about noon on Saturday at a building where Brown has a business office. Witnesses at an insurance seminar in the same building told investigators that Brown came into their classroom brandishing a pistol and a shotgun while mumbling. The witnesses said Brown demanded to know who had been using his restroom, then ordered two identified females to lock the bathroom door and give him the key. The singer then left in a late model pickup, police said, but he was spotted by a Richmond County officer on a nearby road and pursued onto eastbound Interstate 20. The officer had to stop about a mile away at the South Carolina line but a North Augusta, South Carolina officer took up the chase, authorities said. The North Augusta officer shot out the front tires of the truck, but Brown continued driving on the rims and crossed back into Georgia, entering Augusta, according to police. Augusta police chased Brown about two miles before the truck became stuck in the front yard of a home in a housing project, and police apprehended Brown with only what force was necessary, according to the police report. In July, and now it gets kind of into the background of what was happening here. In July, a grand jury indicted Brown on charges of possession of the drug PCP, resisting arrest, and possession of an illegal firearm after a May 18th incident in which he led authorities on a high-speed chase. Brown pleaded guilty to the resisting to arresting arrest and firearms charge and no contest to the drug charge. He had to pay a $1,200 fine and was ordered to perform a concert to benefit abused children and police. Again, he's getting these, he's getting kind of the, 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 the light treatment here. The superstar treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Now here's the amazing thing in April Brown, which was charged with assault with intent to murder after his wife, Adrian Brown told authorities, he fired several shots at the couple's car while she was inside. The charges were eventually dropped after Mrs. Brown refused to testify against her husband. Now, what that last paragraph does not mention are the facts that as part of the allegations that Brown had made between this time and when she died were an alleged uh, sexual assault and a beating with an iron pipe. Mm. Yeah. And so uh, that incident in April probably should have put him a uh, away. Basically, it was it was rape and assault with a deadly weapon and attempted murder. Uh, should have put him away for the rest of his life. Uh, why uh, that didn't happen? It's it's, un, it's just unbelievable. 
And so as, as a kind of a, a postscript to all this, going back to the time story by Ms. Stanley in February of 1989, Brown is not eligible for parole until 1992. Uh, he actually got out in February of 91. Uh, his lawyers who are working on an appeal may seek a form of work release. Brown says what he misses most are his fans touring overseas and fooling around until three or four in the morning with friends. Quote, I'm well-rested now, says the hardest working man in show business, but I miss being tired. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it would be funnier if it wasn't for all the, the dark shit that happened in 1988, where he had those three incidents with the law. And it was it was probably the least severe is the one that landed him in prison. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah sexual assault combined with assault with a deadly weapon. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say, and so it just, it really is disturbing because you, you said he had all those things, but you forgot. Oh, and you like to play around with guns too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and, th- th- that was the trouble with the law. Not just a gun, but guns that weren't registered. Yeah. He had unregistered <laughs> guns and it, and it was shotguns too. Uh, most of the time, you know? And so, right. so a, a, a guy who's like, you know, He's kind of a caveman to begin with as as far as his uh, a man's got to do what a man's got to do kind of attitude. Now hop that guy up on PCP and put a shotgun in his hands. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is not unregistered guns and he still doesn't like paying taxes. Yeah. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah. You come after him. No, no. You go after him. (laughs) You know, so it's just brown. it, It And it's sad. And I don't know if it's just. The pressures of, of fame or you know, like, you know, feeling like, you know, you, you get to a certain point and maybe it's kind of what happened to like the Elvises of the world where you and Michael Jackson, where you're living your life in this rich man's bubble and you mm-hmm. can't get out. So you find your escape in drugs and then just everything just kind of spirals out of control from there. Um, now, those other two guys didn't have quite the violence issues, right. quite the violence issues. Uh, Not even close. (laughs) Yeah, that 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 Brown had, but you almost wonder if it kind of comes born from the same place because, uh, you know, from what I've read, he had uh, managers and accountants in the uh, in the eighties that weren't exactly looking after his best interests. Uh, You know, he Mm. basically stole a bunch of money from him. Like he, oh yeah, 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 he made a bunch of money off of uh, he like he sold his catalog at one point for like $26 million and like his business manager, like used half of it to go buy himself property down in central America or something. It was something. So something basically he sold like his that. publishing, right? Yeah. Basically he sold his publishing. It was like $26 million that he got for his, uh, that he got for his publishing rights. And half of that was, was built. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's just a lot going on. It was just a, and so he just kind of lost his mind. It got too big, too fast, too hard. And just, you know, he, he just between basically 1980 and when he died, uh, which is basically what, like Christmas Eve of 2006, yeah. it was somewhere around there. It just, it was like a slow gradual. He, he just went insane and he never yeah. did get off drugs. I mean, he, yeah, well, he, he, he kind of sort of did it, but very, very late. All right. Yeah. So here we go. We're going to the end here, all right? Yes, we are. So, as you said, James Brown was let out of prison in 1991, and he continued to be a major concert draw as essentially a legacy act. He put out records and singles, but none of them made any impact. Didn't matter, though. By this point, Brown had been solidly codified as the most important R&B soul artist of all time, the pioneer of funk, the grandfather of hip-hop, and one of America's most influential musical artists of the 20th century. However, his bad behavior didn't stop either. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, he continued abusing PCP up to the end of the 1990s. More disturbingly, in 1998, a woman named Mary Simons accused Brown of holding her captive in his house for three days while demanding oral sex. Yep. The, charges, the charges were dismissed. In 1999, Lisa Rushton, a former singer in his band, filed another civil suit against Brown, alleging that between 1994 and 1999, he demanded sexual favors from her. And when she didn't comply, he would cut her pay or leave her out of the show, the shows altogether. She also claimed that he, quote, 
placed a hand on her buttocks and loudly told her in a crowded restaurant to not look or speak to any other man besides himself, end quote. She eventually withdrew her lawsuit. In another lawsuit, a woman named Lisa Agbalaya, uh, who worked for Brown, alleged that he gave her a pair of zebra print underwear and asked her to wear, wear them while he massaged her with oil. She said no, she got fired, and while a Los Angeles jury cleared Brown of sexual harassment, he was found liable for wrongful, wrongful termination. termination. Yeah, yeah. In 2000, police were summoned to Brown's house after an electric company technician complained that Brown threatened him with a steak knife. In 2004, a woman with whom he had a wedding ceremony but had not officially married, uh, her name was a uh, Tommy Ray Heine, accused him of pushing her to the floor of their home during an argument causing her to suffer scratches and bruises to her arm and hip. Brown was arrested and pleaded no contest due to uh, to the domestic abuse charge. However, he wasn't um, imprisoned and instead forfeited a $1,000 U.S. bond. In 2005, a woman named Jacques Hollander filed a lawsuit against Brown stemming from an alleged 1988 rape at the peak of his PCP uh, abuse. She claimed that while working for Brown at the, at the time as a publicist and riding in a van with him, Brown pulled the van to the side of the road and sexually assaulted her while threatening her with a shotgun. Yep. The case was eventually dismissed due to the statute of limitations and how the period for filing the suit had expired. Uh, this is all a testament to the fact that Great music isn't always done by good people. And while Brown's treatment of women is a permanent stain and blemish on his personal legacy, and deservedly so, his musical legacy is for the most pretty much untouchable and unmatched. He died at the age of 73 in a hospital in Atlanta on Christmas Day 2006 due to congestive heart failure resulting from pneumonia. Chris? Yeah, and... It's really, really sad, and I, I have to. And I might actually put a link to this uh, article in our show notes, uh, folks. CNN, a reporter for CNN back in 2019, did a series of three articles. It's an amazing read about uh, the sort of the sinister circumstances, perhaps, behind the death of Adrian Brown and of Brown himself. That there are folks out there, uh, Jackie Hollander uh, being one of them, uh, and uh, folks in Brown's orbit that uh, do believe that folks that uh, were associated with uh, Brown's handlers, managers, accounts, all those were uh, so uh, controlling and so possessive and so wanting to uh, not have Brown's behavior blow things that they were willing to go to extreme lengths of intimidation and following folks and, you know, basically harassment, spying, uh, threatening, uh, these types of things being followed, all of this kind of stuff. And uh, there's an allegation that, uh, that Adrian Brown was not actually, uh, it wasn't an overdose that she was murdered by a doctor who was hired uh, by Brown's handlers to uh, to basically inject her with the fatal shot of PCP. Mm. And uh, supposedly, you know, there's uh, detectives uh, that were investigating this. Jackie Hollander has been at it for 30-something years ever since her alleged uh, rape. Uh, and then there's also allegations that Brown himself, you know, that you know, Brown was famously, uh, because he was the hardest working man in show business, he didn't take care of himself. So by the time he landed himself in a hospital, he had, he had type 1 diabetes that was not diagnosed for years. Right. And just stuff like that. He just didn't take care of himself. And so right. they figured he'd check into the hospital. they get himself right. Uh, you know, he had a little bit of a heart attack, from what I understand. They were going to get him right now. And then all of a sudden he died. Like he, he went way downhill. Which makes sense if you know anything about congestive heart failure, it can happen at any moment. Yeah. Uh, but there's also this allegation, apparently, that someone uh, came into his room. That the guy was supposed to, there was a personal representative that's supposed to stay with Brown. Uh, he leaves the room 
for a while. While he's out, another person comes in and injects uh, his trach uh, line with either cocaine or PCP or something and causes Brown to OD on the spot. Mm. And there's just a lot of compelling, you know, she, this reporter does all the circumstantial work on this that makes you wonder just how wrapped up Brown and, and well, James Brown and Adrian Brown, uh, how deep into all of this they were as a result of the machinations of, of Brown's uh, managers slash handlers and, and, and all of this. And so it, it's, it, it's, it's weird. Cause there are people who claim that they were in the room when Brown died, when he took his last breaths. Yeah. I think, you know, yeah, so. it, it, yeah. There's conflicting, like one of his daughters, I think said that, uh, or, yeah, that or, she or was something. in the hospital room with him while yeah. he took his last breaths, so he, that, that she was there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then, but then, uh, her, her estranged ex-husband was going around saying that, uh, that Brown was murdered too. And that maybe she was in on it, <laughs> you know, cause, cause you remember there was, there was a big, and it's, I may still be going on. There was like a big brouhaha over his will that, you know, apparently there's, you know, like, was that really a will or, you know, cause, cause essentially what happened was, is that, um, uh, in his will, his estate went over to, uh, three, uh, trustees or, you know, basically three folks who were going to run the thing, uh, as trustees, but they would get 50% of, of the estate for management expenses, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, is that they were taking half of Brown's money for themselves and the other half was going to charity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's just a lot of weird, dark stuff that's out there. And I don't know if any of it's true or not that it's a hell of a story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Clearly it's a hell of a story. But it does underscore that, you know, Brown, he, he lived fast, he lived hard, he lived wild and things. You, you can't be that hard driving and not have everything go crazy, Yeah. whether, whether it's drugs, whether it's mental illness, whether it's his, it's his own health. I mean, he, he literally ran himself into the ground, essentially, yeah. from it sounds like it just, you know, untreated diabetes and other conditions. Uh, so but no, I encourage people to read this, the CNN article i just came across it this week it is it is a weird ass read because you can't believe that that this kind of shit would actually happen like i mean what you know let's just put it this way james patterson couldn't come up with shit this good (laughs) you know so and it's sad you you made a point arturo and we we've talked about that a few times on this podcast but brown is one of the, the finest shining examples of you know let's not confuse the art with the artist Right. I mean, the art is indelible and will always last there. Brown was a genius. Brown did uh, innovate uh, popular music several times. He is the creator of the one. Uh, Without him, we don't get a lot of the early uh, inspired hip hop that came out of uh, New York in in the late 80s, which for what it's worth, Brown, when he got out of prison, collected his money from suing for his royalties (laughs) (laughs) from all those guys that sampled without permission. But uh yeah, so he had a, he had this legacy, but he also he he was a dark, dark, dark person, and yeah. there was a lot of darkness there, and there was a lot of corruption, you know, deep corruption of the soul there, and so you know, too bad. Yeah. Well, folks, oh, well. we have ended we have ended our James Brown trilogy. Hopefully, you don't have you don't have to like or respect him as a human being, but you can respect him and like him as an artist and for his pioneering and innovative way innovative ways. Yeah, absolutely. And so ultimately, this is a celebration. Uh, it's it's a celebration with a uh, a troubling postscript. Let's just put it that right. way. Exactly. Uh, so um, we, we are delighted to have brought you this. Uh, it, it's it was just a lot of fun. Uh, he's one of them. Uh, Artie and I will never get tired of talking about James Brown ever, uh, <laughs> ever. And I think you folks will realize that, that we've talked with a reverence and there's just there's just Brown makes us smile. Like there's just something about Brown, the character and Brown, the music, he just makes you smile. And we hope that we've been able to convey those smiles uh, to everyone uh, out there. And so we're going to go from, uh, we're not leaving Georgia. We we started this whole Georgia series with REM, then three episodes on James Brown. And now we're going to a band, one of the great woulda, shoulda, could have been's in rock history, a band from Atlanta, the Black Crows. They had the world at the palm of their hands. They were one of the biggest bands in America. 
and they just let it go. What happened? Yeah, absolutely. You know, they became one of the great cult bands in America, but it didn't have to yeah. be that way. Yeah, uh, yeah, they, they, they were a very big, cult, very big cult band, playing yeah. theaters all over the country. I mean, they still were, but they, they, they had it. They were on the trajectory of being Pearl Jam level big. Oh you know? yeah, and, and then and, they just, and then they just fell off a cliff. And again, yeah. drugs and demons, man, drugs and demons. Uh, yes. So we, we will, we will tackle that in our final episode of our, our Georgia swing an examination of the black crows. Yes. This is, this is the Georgia, this is the Georgia wing of the curmudgeon rock uh, report hall of fame is what we're <laughs> going through uh, right now. Uh, speaking of uh, things worthy of a uh, hall of fame, our curmudgeonly community, uh, yeah. as we, at the end of these episodes, as we always do, we encourage everyone out there to join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook it's a pretty rollicking page. We have a few, uh, a few uh, shining regulars. Uh, hello, Paul. Uh, hello, Daniel. Uh, and hello, anybody else that's contributed to our conversations up, up there lately. Uh, find that at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Uh, also, if you have anything to say about uh, James Brown, if you have any reactions to anything we've said on this episode, uh, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And you can still find us on Twitter. And uh, less and less and less, I gotta admit, it's you know, you've heard of the army of the blue checks. This, these are all these redneck yahoos that are betting, that are uh, ponying up eight bucks so that they can get their blue checks, so they can be official when they spread their bullshit on Twitter. Uh, but there's still there's still a lot, uh, some traction to go, and we're at at the Pod. And uh, yeah, we will be putting together. Uh, a big, a big old Spotify playlist that will combine all three of these episodes and put uh, the music of James Brown out there uh, for accompaniment uh, to uh, this series. 